There's an interesting tension we find in the New Testament. Jesus is the Word of God, and Jesus does the Word of God. We're consistently confronted with deciding the proper place of each word. Now, the Pharisees thought that written words were much more important than the living expression of the word. So repeatedly, they confronted Jesus over actions that seemed to violate what was written, things like healing on the Sabbath. His response? You come to the scripture, the written word, because you think that in them you have life. But those are all words that point to me. Oddly enough, you refuse to come to me and enjoy true life. That's in John 5, 39 through 40, and it's really kind of my paraphrase. But to sum it up another way, Jesus was really saying something like, you're selling yourself short. Now, I saw a cartoon a while back scrolling through my social media feed. It was a black and white drawing. Jesus walks into the room in the picture. It's a cartoon. It's full of church people. It looks like they're studying the Bible. He interrupts them, telling them to do something. One of the men studying this Bible repeats and replies, uh, hold on, hold, hold on, hold on. Let, let me see what's written. Let, let me see what the text says. Now you get the point. The artist satirically points to the reality that many of us deep dive into the text while ignoring the Jesus in the room. That is, we can be like the Pharisees too. Now let me give you a confession. Artists like that, they most of the time get under my skin. Generally, they create with an ax to grind. And that's a far cry from the perfect love that we described in talk seven of this series. As such, they're not really engaging in meaningful conversation. They're launching grenades, and they're sending them from a distance. Yeah, I understand what the drawing attempts to say, but the reality is that we don't have to choose between the written expression of God's heart and the living expression. That is, we don't find ourselves in a position where we must choose between the Bible or choose between Jesus as if it's an either-or scenario. You see, in the same way that Jesus is the perfect expression of the Father, revealing Him completely, that, that was where we started this entire series back in talk number one. Jesus is also the perfect expression of the text. John says that the Word, the, the Logos, the written Word, became flesh and walked with us in John 1.14. Now, one of the most quoted verses in the church in the church world today is John 14, 6. In it, Jesus says this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And whereas most evangelicals use this passage as the proof text for exclusive salvation through Jesus, that's not at all what Jesus was claiming here. Now, before I go farther, let me clarify this. I do believe that salvation is found in Jesus alone. We see that written in Acts 4.12. But in this verse, Jesus shows us something more relevant to this conversation about the written word, something far more beautiful. You see, in his culture, deeply Jewish, people commonly referred to the Torah, that's the first five books of the Old Testament, the law, as the way, the truth, and the life. They believed that these five books of Moses, as they were commonly called, encouraged and empowered people to live a life of honor before God and before each other. When the disciples heard Jesus talking then about being the way, they wouldn't have heard, oh, that's an argument for exclusivity. That was already a given in their mind. The one true God revealed himself. There was nowhere else they would want to go, no other path they wanted to pursue. Every other scenario was a proven dead end. They were already convinced that the things he taught, the path he created, was one, the exclusive one of life. Look at John 6, 68, for example. To them, Jesus was saying something more like this. 
I came to show you what the scriptures really look like when you live them, when you put them in action, when you take the black ink and express it in living color. Or maybe to say it a different way, I came to show you what Torah looks like. That's in large part why he told the listeners of the Sermon on the Mount that he came to fulfill the law in Matthew 5.17. It wasn't just an obedience issue. It was a let-me-show-you-how-to-walk-out-relationships-with-the-father-and-each-other type of issue. It's also why he prayed for the Father to sanctify his followers with the truth. Then, after doing so, he elaborated, your word is truth. See John 15, 15-17. In the past few years, it's gotten in vogue, especially in hipsterish churches and on social media, to say things that sound true but just don't hold up to the weight of Scripture. For example, a pastor I know stood in a service a few months ago and repeated the mantra that Jesus hates religion. Uh, nope. I'm pretty sure that he doesn't. In fact, Jesus' little brother, James, penned an entire book of the Bible, of all things, about pure and undefiled religion. Pure religion seeks orphans and widows in their distress, according to James 1.27. And throughout his ministry, Jesus consistently drives the people he teaches back to the text, back to study the themes of mercy and justice. Like look in Matthew 9.13, where he drives them to these overarching themes of the Old Testament. And the word religion, it comes from the Latin word religio, that is, reconnect. And that's what pure religion does. It reconnects us to the Father and to the people whom He wants to express His love to and express His love through. As I sat in another church service a few weeks after this first one, I heard another empty soundbite. If you're reading the Holy Bible and it causes you to oppose someone, then you're reading the wrong thing. You need to go back and read the Holy Spirit. Again, it sounds right, but it's just honestly, it's just stupid. In James 5.20, it says that he who pulls back a sinner that's stumbling actually saves them from death. And in 1 Corinthians 5.12, Paul says, hey, you, you should, albeit graciously, judge each other inside the church. Even in Jude, he says in chapter 1, verse 23, that when you, you reach out and rescue someone who's stumbling, you, you know, get this word, you snatch them from the fire. Now, lest all that sound like legalism, remember what Paul told Timothy about Scripture in 2 Timothy 3, 16-17. He said this, let me just quote, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, notice there, the Word can inform, that, that is, it can teach us, and it can correct us, it can rebuke us. Furthermore, it equips us to live righteously and to do all of life. Back back to that way, truth, life type of thing. And by the way, righteous, it's a relational term and not an obedience term. It, It means to walk in correct harmony with each other. It's interesting that this aforementioned job description, which Paul just gave the Bible in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, it's similar to what Jesus said the Holy Spirit does for us in John 14, 16. Here's the quote of what Jesus said. Notice the similarity. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I've said. And again, we don't have to choose between one or the other, between Jesus or the Scripture, between the Holy Spirit or the Scripture. The Spirit who conceived Jesus, the living Word, is the same Spirit who breathed life into the written Word. Now, now look up in the text. Look maybe Matthew 1.18 and 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17. If you're one of the people who likes to take a deep dive and look into the Scripture, those are two verses 
that highlight that. Furthermore, uh, here's another verse. Speaking of God's word, David actually says this. And by the way, David is the one that was known to be a man after God's own heart. In Psalms 138.2, he says, You've magnified your word above all of your name. A few talks ago, I referenced 2 Timothy 1.7. I mentioned that we want to walk in power, love, and a sound mind. All, all three. We discussed that love is the context of our ministry. I talked about that in talk number seven, Love is Greater. And then we discussed power and the role of the Holy Spirit for several talks. When we talk number eight, Power from Above, and talk nine, To Reveal Jesus, and talk 10, the previous one about powerful intimacy. So now, Power, Love, and Sound Mind. Now we're really, with this talk, moving into that third, that sound mind discipline. Now I reviewed a few translations of that verse, 2 Timothy 1.7 which says God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power, of love, and of a sound mind. And the different ways in which that sound mind phrase at the end is presented, it helps us really understand the tone of what Paul is writing about. A sound mind, it's also communicated as, here, here's three examples, self-discipline in the New, New International Version, wise discretion in the King James Version, and self-control in the English Standard Version. So God's not given us a spirit of fear, but of power of love and of self-discipline, of power of love and wise discretion, of power of love and self-control. Each of these, sound mind, self-discipline, wise discretion, self-control, each of these are important as we pursue our calling. And whereas our emotions are given to us by God to experience, to explore, and interact with the world around us, we don't want to be controlled by them. We, we want to live with open hearts as we express the living word to the world around us using the written word as our guide. Let me repeat that because I love that phrase. We want to live with open hearts as we express the living word to the world around us using the written word as our guide. You see, everything Jesus did was in congruence with Scripture. Absolutely everything. And everything He continues to do then through us, it remains in alignment with His Word. So that, that means things like this. It means that He won't lead us to do anything in contradiction of what He's already shared. It also means He won't instruct you in prayer to do something that defies what He's penned on parchment or paper. And for the purposes of really our study, where we've been and where we're heading in the next few weeks, it means that everything we do in ministry, everything we do in service to others, it should be governed by Scripture. As we look to live an expression of the Word of Christ in us, that written Word, it serves as our guide and our guardrails. So a sound mind, a mind of wise discretion, self-discipline, self-control, it's essential to walking in truth and in living in truth. Now, the Father understands our propensity to walk untethered from Scripture, to let a little success in one area go to our heads and forge out of balance as we move ahead. As such, in the Old Testament, He instructed the kings of Israel to do something that seems a bit odd, particularly when you've got a long to-do list of all the important things required to run an empire. He told the kings to write a copy of the law, the Torah, the way, the truth, and the life, to write all of it in their own handwriting. And no shortcuts. Don't pay someone else to do it for you. Write it out longhand in front of the priest. You can find the command to do this in Deuteronomy 17, 18 through 20. Now, a few years ago, I was reading through the Old Testament, and I thought, I wonder if Solomon actually did this. Here's why. Solomon is the third king of Israel, right behind Saul, a horrible king, and David, the greatest king. 
God appeared to him one evening at the beginning of his reign and offered him what really was a blank check. Ask for whatever you want, God told him. I'll give it to you. You might remember the story. Solomon requested wisdom. It's in 1 Kings 4.29. And because he asked for that instead of the other things that he could have requested instead, he was gifted with the wisdom plus so much more. Now, follow me for a moment. In the same passage where God, through Moses, instructed the kings to make a copy of the Torah, the way, the truth, and the life, in their own handwriting, he also gave a few specific instructions. In Deuteronomy 17, 15 through 17, literally in the sentences preceding the admonition to write this down. Let me show you. First, God highlighted three things that the kings shouldn't do. Here here they are from Deuteronomy 17, 15 through 17, English Standard Version. I'll, I'll make some of them stand out for you. One from among your brothers shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother, only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive gold and silver. Okay, so three things highlighted not to do. Don't acquire many horses. Don't acquire many wives. Don't acquire excessive amounts of silver and gold. Now, second, notice the very next instruction after this. It's in Deuteronomy 17, 18 through 19. And when he sits on the throne of the kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priest, and it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes. So there's the admonition to write it down. Third, we're told the reason for this is so that they will prosper for generations. That that is, God's word isn't legalistic. God's word is safe. Look in Deuteronomy 17.20. Here's the quote. That his heart might not be lifted up among his brothers, that he might not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. When you read through Solomon's story, you notice that it's almost like he took God's plan of what not to do as the playbook for what he actually did. He was told not to acquire many horses, yet he collected stalls and chariots, according to 2 Chronicles 9.25. He was told not to pursue relationship with multiple women, yet we learn that Solomon amassed 700 wives and 300 concubines in 1 Kings 11, 1 and following. Predictably, his heart shifted towards them. He was told not to hoard silver or gold, yet he made silver as plentiful as stones, according to 1 Kings 10.27. Furthermore, the Israelites were once slaves in Egypt. God heard their cry and freed them. That's in Exodus 3.7. Throughout the law, they're told to remember their former plight so that they might empower others instead of oppressing them, so that they might use their privileged position to impart hope rather than restraining others. Ironically, the former slaves became slaveholders under Solomon, though, levying huge taxes and demanding thousands to become forced laborers. God appeared to Solomon a second time after he built the temple, the very thing he used the taxes and labor and treaties and horses and silver to construct. Now, no doubt, Solomon could have spiritualized everything he did, even placing a halo on top of every scriptural violation. After all, he had good reasons, godly reasons, he could argue at least. 
He had built a place of worship and made alliances to serve Israel's borders with safety and security as people were now, it appeared, safe and prosperous. But, but again, no, Scripture is a safeguard. Even when we don't understand it and even when we feel like it's restraining us, holding us back, the written word holds us in a safe place for our good. In 1 Kings 9.4, God reminded Solomon after he dedicated the temple to walk in his ways so that his heart might always rain blessing on him in the work of his hands. I see the father graciously revisiting his son, offering him almost a do-over. It's almost like God sees that Solomon has jumped the tracks and he's pleading with him graciously, tenderly, hey, hey, wait, you're, you're driving this thing off the road. My, my blessing is, is all over here waiting for you. Don't go after that over there. Come over here and step under this. Makes us wonder, like, where does the enemy really attack? And many times you'll find that the enemy chooses to attack us, not in the areas in which we're the weakest, but in the areas in which we're strong. Or even if it's not the enemy, that's an area where we might find ourselves tempted to leap ahead of the Spirit and then move in our own strength. Think about it. How was Solomon able to build an empire so rapidly? How, how could he collect horses and wives and money? The answer is that he was extremely wise. And where did he get that wisdom? The answer, it was supernatural. God gave it to him. And like Solomon, you might be able to look back at your life, identify the areas the enemy attacked, I know I can, and recognize that those were your strongest areas. Those might still be your strongest areas. But because of that, and because you could manage those areas in your own strength, you did, I did, and that's what left us vulnerable. Here's the tension. The Lord supernaturally gifts us so that we can outperform what we're able to do in our own strength. He wants to do immeasurably more than we can ask, think, or imagine, as Paul proposes in Ephesians 3, 19-20. At the same time, grace sticks almost exclusively to weakness, according to 2 Corinthians 12, 9-11. In other words, we've got to consistently remind ourselves where the gifts originate, as well as the purposes for which we have them. Now circle back to 2 Timothy 3, 16-17. Scripture is given for teaching and for reproof. That is for disapproval. That's another word that's fallen out of use in the church today. Whereas God never disapproves of me and you any more than I disapprove of my kids, He sometimes disapproves of the things we do just like we disapprove of the things our children do. Because we're apt to lean on feelings or what we, quote, hear, unquote, in prayer, he offers us an objective signpost, a written word that's always in alignment with his living expression. And adhering to that living expression is his heart. And that's what I mean by this term that you're going to hear over and over through the next few talks. The term is instructional obedience. Now, let me do this. Let me close and pray. Next week in the next episode, I'll be back and I'm going to give you some things from Scripture that are specifically the will of God for my life and for your life. Until that time, may the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord be gracious to you and shine His great favor upon you. May you see that you don't have to choose. It's not an either-or scenario between the grace of Jesus and what seems sometimes to be the rigidity of 
of the written scripture. Both of these are an absolute total agreement. And may you feel that sometimes when there's a tension there, it's not just to hold us, to restrain us. It's actually for our good by a gracious Father who sees not just the short-term gain, but the long-term pain and the long-term potential when we walk in His way. May you hear the voice of the Spirit in prayer. May you see the voice of the Spirit in the text. Until next time, grace, peace. Shalom.